Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on January 19th, 2016, and is titled The Mind of Mark DeFriest, a social cinema screening with The Marshall Project, and features Gabriel London, director and producer of The Mind of Mark DeFriest, Bill Keller, editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project, Jamie Fellner, senior advisor of U.S. programs at Human Rights Watch, and Maurice Shema staff writer at the Marshall Project. I thought that we might just sort of start things off by asking Gabriel to tell us a little bit about uh, what's happened in Mark's case since, uh, since that last scene that we just saw. Yeah, and I think that the safe answer would be nothing that you would have expected. Um, it's been interesting. We, we got Mark, um, as you saw, the, that epilogue we added at the end of the film. So when I first premiered the film, it really ended with the, that last parole, uh, the second to last parole hearing that had him being denied and having that extension of one year or two years. And then, then the film uh, came out, I showed it to the parole commission, and obviously things changed significantly when audiences got involved. But when we finally moved through in the last year to get him transferred to Oregon, nothing happened as we expected. Um, Mark was transferred in, uh, you know, your typical Con Air bus. So, you know, he's put in this this bus, but in his case, because of his escape history, he was put in a in a metal box in the back of a bus with leg and waist chains and a shock belt. And then driven across the desert southwest and up to Oregon over the course of like four days and emerged having only been into McDonald's across the, the path and put into solitary confinement. And he was crying foul the whole time. And I said, well, they just probably don't understand what's going on and it's going to be sorted out. Well, here we are um, nine months later and um, Florida has never given Oregon the information that he's on parole. And so he is treated in Oregon um, like he was the escape risk that he was in the 1980s and 90s. And they have on all his files that he is serving a life sentence. And I've only just last week figured out that this is a matter of policy, that they don't update a prisoner's sentence structure until the end of a uh, the last sentence that they've served. So Mark is currently on parole, serving a one-year sentence, that is non-parole eligible. And as a result of that, they have never updated the file. And so he's been treated very badly and um, denied any of the uh, services, or not even services, any of the opportunities that he would like to, to for education or for a job or any of the things that he had before. And most recently, he did receive a disciplinary report for um, that he was became very manic, and and they tested him for drugs, and they said that his uh, blood showed that he was, or his urine showed that he had had THC. And we're right now in the middle of figuring out whether that was because he takes 2,400 milligrams of ibuprofen every day for his headaches, which is a known trigger for THC false positives on those tests, or whether he in fact did completely shoot himself in the foot. And I just heard an email tonight uh, that we've finally gotten, we had the HIPAA request and everything, and we've got the files. So we'll see. 
I mean, part of uh, what it struck me about the film and about his story is that sort of journalists are often looking for uh, specific situations and cases and stories that just keep a reader or a film viewer sort of immersed in a world. But then at the same time, you sort of have to balance the sort of extraordinary specific story. I mean, most prisoners don't make their own guns uh, or develop keys out of paper, right? Uh, but, of course, it also illuminates these sort of much bigger issues that affect thousands, tens of thousands of prisoners. Um, and I'm kind of curious, when you saw the film, Jamie, what were the sort of major issues of uh, sort of the way in which mentally ill people are treated in prisons and jails that it, that it sort of dovetailed with for you? And also, if you could kind of just sketch out for us, I know we could have a sort of books about this, but sort of sketch out for us sort of how we got here and why someone like Mark DeFriest, you know, aside from the fact that he committed this small crime at the beginning, ends up in this kind of uh, back and forth purgatory of, of the criminal justice system. In 25 words or less? You can have 30. <laughs> um, so I think, I, I think there are two main thing, takeaways from that I would want everybody to take away from this movie. A, in addition to the fact that Mark is clearly an extraordinarily creative individual who in another life would have, you know, he should be giving advice to prison officials about how to protect their prisons. Um, first of all is Florida. Florida has had a history for decades of being a brutal prison system, especially the prison where he was. And there's been very little progress um, improving that. And so that raises questions of, it's not just Mark, but many, many people who have been brutalized in those, in that, that particular prison and in the prison system in Florida in general. And we have to ask ourselves, why and how does that continue and what are the forces that lead to it? The second thing is mental illness. The reality is that Prisons in general have become warehouses for the mentally ill, and segregation, isolation, solitary confinement has been in particular the place within prisons in which people with serious mental illnesses are disproportionately confined. Uh, needless to say, it's the worst possible place for them. So we also have to ask ourselves as a society, why are we doing this? These are choices that have been made. They've been made over decades now. There is movement growing to try and challenge that. Um, but we need to sort of think about how do we institutionalize a real change from solitary and a change from putting mentally ill people particularly in solitary. Um, and I think the movie raises all those questions. Um, and Bill, I mean, part of the impetus for the Marshall Project where we both work was the idea that there's a kind of moment right now uh, of criminal justice reform, that people are talking about criminal justice more, uh, and that these issues are sort of out in the public in a way that they haven't maybe been. Uh, you know, both of you sort of came upon uh, these issues well before the kind of current moment. I know Gabriel started making this film 10 years ago, uh, started talking to Mark 14 years ago. Uh, but Bill, I, I'm curious, uh, you're someone who, like me, remembers sort of not being immersed in the criminal justice system and then kind of coming to it and learning about it. And I'm curious sort of how you see this sort of bipartisan moment and also the role that you kind of see mental illness uh, playing at, when it comes to things like public sympathy and the way in which the public talks about criminal justice. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start by being sort of confessional on behalf of the media at large. I, I think historically we've been reasonably good at covering crime, but not very good at covering criminal justice. You know, and the, the obvious example is the if it bleeds, it leads TV, local, local TV newscast, where you have a, one one producer and a camera and a cop, and that's your whole story. That's that's all you've got time for. Uh, I mean, I spent eight years as executive editor of the New York Times, and we did not have a prison beat, uh, although there are an awful lot of people in prisons and jails in, in New York. We covered uh, uh, escapes, and we covered riots in the, in the prisons, but basically there was no covering of the institution. Uh, likewise, we covered crime on the streets, and we had, a, we had police and courts reporters, but we rarely wrote about the, the system of the courts or the system of policing or the tactics of policing. I mean, and the and the Times did a better job than a lot of other places did in those respects. Um, so I was sort of wide open to the possibility when Neil Barsky started the, who was, was the founder of the Marshall Project, came to me and said, "Leave the Times, come build this this thing." Um, and it's it's different in several respects from running a big. Kind of mainstream news organization. One of them is that we have this sense of mission, which does not make us an advocacy group, but it, we have. But we're very focused on a system that we know is dysfunctional. Um, and the reasons that appealed to me, aside from the fact that there was just it's what the Pentagon calls a target-rich environment, the the military justice, the the um, criminal justice system. Um, I had reached a point where writing about Washington was just making me crazy. Because nothing happened, the, the 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 gridlock and the paralysis were so infuriating, and and there were two appealing things uh, about writing about criminal justice. One of them was that most of it happens at the state level anyway, and the states were turning into little laboratories of what you could do. Some laboratories, like Florida, not so successful. Mm -hmm. Others, others surprisingly successful. Um, and the other thing was that even at the federal level. There is this common ground between right and left. Is there not concentric circles? There are a lot of things they don't even want to talk about with each other. But on things like mandatory sentencing, the length of sentencing, uh, the need for reentry programs, uh, the need for rehabilitation when people, you know, we call it a correction system, but it doesn't correct anything. Um, that there is a common ground on all of those things, and it's not, you know, yes. The Koch brothers are probably in this because they want to soften their image, but they're in it, uh, and they're spending lots and lots of money on things like indigent defense and and arguing for uh, shorter sentences. So, uh, call me a Pollyanna, but I, I see some room for optimism about things getting better. Mm -hmm. um, and Gabriel, I mean, since you started this, since you started talking to Mark, uh, it was. 14 years ago, what has changed in just the way that you see the public conversations since you started? Does it seem like people care more? Yeah, I mean, I think we felt as we were coming out with the movie that there was a wave that was cresting and in a sense that it was a good moment that, oh man, it took 13 years to make this film, but wow, isn't it a good moment to come out with this? You know, I mean, it was interesting to see that there were years where I don't think people were 
this just wasn't a hip conversation. It wasn't where people's heads were at. And I think now there is certainly a moment where people are talking about it and learning about it and interested in some way in seeing some advancement. I mean, right now, and I think we're all sensitive to it, I think particularly as storytellers, is this notion of... Um, you know, individual narratives, there are so many exceptional narratives in the in, in the prison system, right? I mean, there are just, you know, you start with the fact that you have two million people, and then you start, you go on to the fact that so many of them are there because, you know, single uh, eyewitness testimony, or they're there because of symptoms of mental illness that somehow became criminalized in the last 30 years. And you really start to realize, wow, there's some great stories. It's the question for me is like, how do you knit together the stories in a way that is meaningful for the societal conversation and ultimately the societal direction? And that's where the gridlock in Washington is frustrating. Um, but you do have these examples in certain places where there's progress happening. So I do feel like it's just a good moment. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I see that presidents for politics re-enters the picture. Tough on crime is always just the easiest, the simplest the way to go for so many people. And, um, uh, you know, the Marshall Project just this week, one of the headlines was around whether the, the moment for bipartisan criminal justice reform has come and gone. And uh, that scares me, you know, because I don't think there really has been a national conversation about the rights and the principles um, that exist, uh, that define how we treat people in the criminal justice system. And I think that applies to Mark, but it applies to so many other people. Um, and we have a tendency to just sort of cordon off issues and, you know, we, we, we're going to deal with the death penalty and then we're going to move on to solitary confinement. And it's like, but no, there is, uh, this is a whole universe that in some way needs to be talked about in a pretty philosophical sort of uh, this is who we are type of way. And I, I would love to see the film do more of that. That's why I love doing a screening like this and reaching new audiences. It's, it's a chance to just keep that conversation going. Can I, can I jump yeah, in on something? One of, when I think about whether there's going to be progress or not, 20 years ago I could not have imagined a president of the United States championing what he has, having a woman who was convicted of a drug crime and sentenced, you know, at his State of the Union. All of that's really, really positive. On the other hand, I think that a lot of the focus, not just on sentencing, primarily on sentencing, there's been much less attention to what goes on inside prisons. There's attention to solitary confinement, but that's actually still remains a small part of what prison life is. What do we want from prisons? What do we want from, quote, punishment? What are the principles that should, and visions and values that should animate how we respond to people who break social norms? And I'm not talking about the person who, because of a mental problem, you know, pees in the street and suddenly ends up in the criminal justice system. That is, that's just barbaric and shouldn't happen. But there are people who commit crimes that we would all agree are crimes or offenses. What is? What do we want to accomplish? And I'm still frustrated, and this is speaking beyond the politics, that I feel there hasn't been enough attention to those underlying questions of values and principles. Most of the state progress, and there has been a lot of progress in some states, has been driven by budgets. We can't afford this. But it leaves untouched the sort of fundamental premises as kind of a punitive, harsh, um, 
dynamic that hasn't been full, or vision that hasn't been fully challenged. And that's still very frustrating to me. People don't talk human rights. I happen to have a... Don't you think it's fear? I think... the, The system is built to a large degree on fear. I think it's built on fear. I think it's built on... We've had a long history now of partisan manipulation and use of crime. Um, I think it's, um, there are a lot of things, but even if you agree that it's fear, that doesn't answer how do we respond to fear. In Europe, as you know, you went to, there's a different response to crime. There's a different response to fear. Um, so why is it that our fear leads us in one direction and in other countries to other places? Why does fear in this country lead to the death penalty? Is that really about fear? I don't know. Let's open it up. Uh, if you have a question, uh, one of our friends here from New America will come over to you. Uh, and I have been told to tell you to keep uh, questions short and succinct because we are going to run out of time. But it's uh, up here in the front. Uh, there wasn't ever an opportunity for them to go back to his original conviction and find some grounds by which that could be un, could have been rescinded. And I don't know whether by rescinding it, it would have undone everything else because he committed crimes that were perceived as crimes independent of that. Um, and with that in mind, I mean, you mentioned about Europe. There was a, there's was been talk about Norway's system. Um, have there been studies that uh, you guys have used or to look at that have compared similar situations and circumstances that I may not be aware of? We talked about that, and I'll leave that to one of you guys. But I think um, in the case of Mark, you know, Mark's files, I got them pretty early on. I got his first, um, oh, God, what did I get? But I have his post-conviction relief handwritten requests for a new trial and this kind of thing. And, um, the, yeah, they, they, they were rejected. Uh, you know, they were just very early efforts at trying to get some sort of legal relief. And I think what, you know, even when I discovered Dr. Berland um, and, and suggested that as a type of new evidence or something to um, people who could work on post-conviction relief, they said that's not really new evidence. That's just somebody recanting or changing their position. But in the parole commission, that in a sense opened the door. But I, you know, everything else about Mark's case was locked shut. There just wasn't, there was no daylight around that. And then I think around this this other question, it's it's interesting to note um, that I think in the U.S. there's very little um, research that's done on outcomes. You know, that we talked about that a little bit at dinner. I don't know if either one of you have. One, one thing that always, whenever you talk about the prisons of Norway or the prisons of Germany, I remember in the Soviet Union there used to be this joke about the... Um, uh, Soviet agriculture minister goes to Sweden and he's taken on a tour of their greenhouses and there's this like profusion of fruits and vegetables and he says to his counterpart, the Swedish agriculture minister, I wish we could do this. And he says, well, why can't you do that in Russia? And he says, not enough Swedes. <laughs> I mean, there's something sort of inherently, you know, I mean, Norway is five million people with oil wealth. Uh, and, a, a, and a different history, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure how that I would generalize about Europe being a stable and humane place when you look at the reaction to the refugees. Once, once the refugee cra- crisis got to be a bit of a, uh, a, a burden, 
you got some pretty nasty response, both from elected officials and the general public in Europe. There's some pretty nasty prisons in Italy and France, and I mean, yes, I mean, it's sort of. Nevertheless, if you look, for example, the death penalty or the length of sentences in Europe, by and large, even for murder, first degree murder, you don't get life without parole, except in extraordinary circumstances. Um, we have an extremely punitive criminal justice system, and it can't just be explained on the size of the our population or the amount of crime in our population, or it, it goes to culture and history and whatever. And I, I personally would love to think that the fine, the long delayed uh, involvement of right-wing Christians, for lack of a better term, in criminal justice might mean a little more attention to values. Why do we put death penalty instead of a 20-year sentence? Why do we say, you know, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, as though that's a sensible response? If we truly cared about public safety, we would care about building the bonds that tie society together and that offer a way to help people who can't sort of meet societal norms to somehow do, you know, make their lives work in a context that doesn't harm others. But we have a, you know, and I'm not an anthropologist or a cultural historian or even a historian to know why that is, but there is a difference here in this country. I would also just say one other thing that that's weighed on me over these years of showing the film now is race and this notion of race as being a leading indicator and a leading driver of incarceration rates in the United States. And I think often I'm, I come back to this notion of first they came for, and I would say that, you know, first they came for the blacks and then afterwards it's really like, okay, the mentally ill and the drug addicted. And it's like a, it's like a big beast that's sort of just taken over all of these different marginalized populations. But I think like when you think of Norway and 5 million people, you also think of a more homogenous society and you think of, you know, you think of a society that's less diverse. And I think we have to think about whether this is an attack also on communities that are marginalized communities, not just something that is, um, Oh, we're we're overly punitive. Well, why are we over punitive? Maybe it's because we think people are disposable, right? Maybe it's because there's just certain classes of people, certain races of people that are just inherently more disposable in the calculus of the United States. That's a scary thought. But then again, you know, the events of the last couple of years have really brought that more to bear for me. Back over here. Hi, I was just curious um, if uh, Mark DeFriest uh, is is paroled. I, Gabriel, I was just wondering what um, I'm curious what how you think he will react and how you think he will go about dealing with that. Yeah, so Mark is infinitely adaptable, and what I like about him is he's a loner and he's somebody who is tremendously inventive. Um, he got his hands in New Mexico when he got to this high level of um, uh, status uh, where he was able to get his hands on an MP3 player and a computer class. And uh, he managed to compress the, D the MP3s on his player so that he could fit seven gigabytes more MP3s on his, on his MP3 player. So this is a guy that just 
lives and breathes technology, is able to, he, he also had a timer that required him to constantly plug into this new uh, system that they have so that they can keep track on your, your downloads, and he defeated the timer. You know, but nobody told him how to do that. So I have the sense that this is a guy that's inventive enough that I think he'd be all right. You know, I don't think he would go out and you know, um, make a, a, a boatload of money, but I think he could set up shop in some way and be comfortable and, and not need to go down to the local bar and get into fights. Like he just he's be the next Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. And he wouldn't, I hope, be the next Jack Henry Abbott, you know, in the sense that he just doesn't he's not a social creature in that same way. He's not seeking out the kind of vindictive or, 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 or aggravated behavior. He's just a he's a chill dude that likes his gadgets. But as as <laughs> yeah. As to the other point, um, he this is so complicated. I mean, I, I'm literally just, I'm in this thing day in and day out, and I just last week figured it all out, that he is technically on parole. He is serving a one-year non-parole eligible sentence in Florida for possession of contraband in prison in the 90s after they abolished parole. And he is facing two two-year sentences in California for the time that he spent in the California prison system in the early 2000s, also for possession of, possession of contraband. Those are detainers, and those would be, as soon as Florida's done with him, technically California would be triggered to, to take possession of him. California doesn't know anything about the fact that Mark is on the doorstep of, of that detainer, and Oregon has no idea that the person that they're housing is on parole. And that's the point that's just mind-boggling to me, because Mark has been afforded none of the privileges that he's earned as a parolee, none of the services that he's earned as a parolee, because Florida has just failed to update the file that is required by Oregon for them to see that he is no longer serving a life sentence. And that has cost him enormous um, amounts of um, care and opportunity. And it makes me scared for him. Uh, it makes me think that maybe they'll rescind his parole in, in February. And uh, it, it makes audiences like yourselves that much more meaningful because it was last time around audiences that made the big difference. I hope you're all ready for the quiz after this. On uh, I know, it's like so on Mark's uh, case. Hello, uh, thank you for showing your film. Uh, I'm wondering, a lot of the discourse around criminal justice reform right now really focuses on uh, reforming sentences for nonviolent drug offenders, but the majority of the prison population are uh, what we would deem to be violent offenders. And so what will it take uh, in order to reform uh, sentencing for violent offenders, which really make up uh, the majority of the prison population in the United States? some kind of a great epiphany. I mean, that's, that's, there are sort of two myths, at least two myths of criminal justice reform. One of them is that if you um, reform the criminal justice system, you will save su such large amounts of money that people will be getting tax rebates, like the Alaskans get checks for their oil revenue. Uh, I mean, and people who, a lot of the people who support downsizing the prisons don't reckon with the fact that you have to come up with alternatives that are not free, you know, drug courts, mental health treatment, uh, for those who are in prison, better programs, re-entry programs, job programs, housing programs. Um, so the idea that there's some huge windfall and that if you're a fiscal conservative, that's reason all by itself to be for criminal justice reform or, is, I think, a myth. And the other is that you can do it by just um, 
you know, taking care of the low-level nonviolent drug offenders who make up something less than 20% of the 2.3 million people in, in prisons and jails in the, in the U.S. Um, but nobody wants to talk about violent crime because that's the way you get Willie Horton out of office. There is one sort of, there are a couple, Bill's absolutely right, but when you look at the prison population as opposed to the, I mean, the jail population as opposed to the prison population, if you reduce the number of people who are cycling through prison, who have been arrested needlessly, charged needlessly, jail, sorry, you look in New York, 300,000 people are, you know, go to arraignment on low-level, nonviolent misdemeanor crimes every year. They could have been cited. They could have been given a ticket. There's absolutely no need for them to go spend a night or two in a holding tank. And then if they don't plead guilty to spend at least five days, if not more, I mean, there are ways in which even if we can't cut the prison population to the same degree some people think, you could start very much at the entry level into the jail system reducing population. But it but the the question it goes to sentences. People with violent crimes get these really high sentences. Right now one in nine people in in prison in the United States is serving a life sentence. Some of those are not life without parole, but the reality is they probably will serve life. That has to be a changed conversation. The Sentencing Project, which is a wonderful group in DC, the head of it has said we should have a twenty year max. And only in extraordinary circumstances should someone get more than a 20-year sentence. That is so foreign to the U.S. way of thinking about things where it's life, you know, one, two, three strikes, you're out. But, you know, it was 20 years ago, it was very foreign to think that a president would be championing criminal justice reform. So if we really start the dialogue of how much do we need, what are we trying to accomplish, um, I think we can start whittling down um, sentences for violent crimes as long as there's not a major upswing in violent crimes, at which point we go back to Willie Horton and, you know, it becomes a political issue and all is lost for at least the next 10 or 20 years. We have time for one more. Back. Struck me was... Uh how the lawyer had to prove that he was mentally impaired before he got to jail, whereas any sane person would become mentally ill from what he went through. Is that par for the course? Or I just don't think they care. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the... the what, what does that say for, for everyone in prison? doesn't say anything good. Uh, I mean, Mark DeFriest was gifted and troubled from the get-go. And anybody who evaluated him and did any kind of modicum of research would have seen that he had a history of both behavioral problems but also great brilliance. I don't know why the prison system is set up in such a way to... Well, you could probably say why it's set up that way. It's set up to house you once you've been in prison. There's not a caseworker there that's looking through your files and going, oh my God, you rebuilt a clock when you were six. And you, you know, like there's just no, there's no curiosity in the system to understand, I think, really who's there. 
doesn't mean I don't I don't mean to kind of make light of that. I think there could be people like that. I mean, when I did my film on prison rape, one of the most interesting things that I learned was that basic classification, just asking, where did you come from? What's your history? You know, what did you what crime did you do? What you know, like just just getting a, a base understanding of where a person is coming from and then determining where they're put in a prison, that level of intelligence goes a long way towards preventing violence, towards not creating situations of recidivism, many other things. We talked a little bit earlier um, amongst us about um, the smart on crime idea. And I, you know, the more I learn about this, the more I realize there's good research out there that tells us things like, well, there's a New Yorker article this week about lineups, you know, that in Texas now they've reformed a lot of their first-person identification, a, a witness testimony stuff based on data that showed, you know, this is a better way of doing things. Research showed them how to do that. I did something in Florida with this Judge Leafman guy who has done a lot of stuff in Miami-Dade County to reform so there's, quote, no wrong door of entry for anybody coming to their system. They know that if the cops pick you up, it's the 911 one people people uh, pick you up if you end up at a jail or whatever it is your file is on record they know oh you have a mental illness we're going to put you right back in your treatment setting or in your you're going to get you back on your meds that kind of thing we can be smarter we just have to demand it there's best practices everywhere and i think it you know it, it's not about everybody being as sensitive as a filmmaker to go in and tell the whole life story it's just a few people to ask questions and just make sure you end up in the right place there's a there's, you can take the, argue, the discussion even more broadly, and it goes back to Europe a little bit. Crime rate, uh, incarceration rates in this country started to soar, started to climb and then soar, at the same time as, what do we want to call it, the welfare state, the social safety net, whatever, was economic uh, opportunities for people in the lower and middle classes were starting to crumble. It's not coincidental. I mean, and there are a number of academics who sort of argue that this is how we control, we use prisons and jails to control, you know, marginalized or leftover or whatever populations. In the end, to deal with the criminal justice problems, I mean, and then the various technical issues, you know, lineups, false identification, coerced in confessions or whatever. But the broader picture is how do we provide the investments in neighborhoods of crime? How do we make sure that the country is looking for a positive response that will lift everybody up and move them on, rather than just saying, okay, you guys, you've broken the rules, you get punished, and you get put in this system from which you won't get out, um, and which will lead to endless repercussions. And I still think this country is woefully behind, um, because it doesn't want to look at the broader implications of criminal justice. Criminal justice doesn't in, exist in a vacuum. You have to look at the social and health and educational policies. I'm sure many of you have heard about million-dollar blocks in New York where more, millions of dollars are spent basically on the criminal justice response to certain neighborhoods rather than to positive investments to building those communities and strengthening. Those might have made, not made a difference in Mark's case because he's a rather unique individual in some ways. But it certainly would make a difference in many other people's cases um, to see that the problems and responses, that, that the way to ensure public safety, which is ostensibly our goal, is not by just looking to the criminal justice system, but looking at more broadly at the social, economic, and political systems that really shape um, how people's lives are going to be lived. 
That's a great note to end on. Thank you all so much for coming out. The New America Foundation, Gabriel London. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.